following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light across in our city and world through the transformed lives of its people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. I'm reading from John, the eighth chapter, verses 31. I said 37. We're actually go through to 38. These are God's words. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. How are we doing? Everybody doing all right this morning? Amen. Amen. Again, um, on, on, on behalf of City Light Church, uh, we want to wish you guys a uh, happy Thanksgiving and holiday season. Uh, this is a very, very, very special time. Obviously, folks connect with friends they haven't seen, family they haven't seen. Um, and it's a very special time. It's a very busy time. Um, I hope that this morning, in some ways, um, all the stirring in your soul can just quiet for a moment. Um, as, you, as, you, as we work through this passage together, which is a very important passage, a very popular passage, um, and a very liberating passage, I'll say, uh, for all of us. And I pray, you, I pray, pray you're able to receive that. Um, I, they're, they're, my wife and I do a lot of uh, marital counseling and, 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 and just um, walking with couples, okay? And over time, God has given me three uh, paradoxes that I feel like serve uh, our couples that we counsel when we're talking to them, both premarital and and once you get in postmarital. Uh, one of the one of the things that we talk to those couples about a paradox in marriages is the is a paradox of selfless happiness. That being that true marriage, true marital happiness does not come about until, believe it or not, you stop looking for it and you stop pursuing it for yourself and you start pursuing it for the sake of your spouse. If you have two people that are actually geared towards pursuing the happiness of one another, then marital bliss begins to ensue, all right? That's one paradox. The other paradox that we often talk to our couples about is the paradox of permanent, uh, momentary or temporary permanence. All right. It's the idea that marriage is supposed to be permanent, that, that you're supposed to be working in your marriage in such a way that you're building it for the long haul, that you are committed to not going anywhere, and that you're going to work and that you're going to that you're going to work in such a way that you build it for the long haul, right? You're going to plant seeds for the long haul, and you're going to take out weeds for the long haul. You, you're, you're planting a garden that you want to see sustained from generation to generation, and yet. Marriage doesn't last from generation to generation. Marriage is temporary, right? And so you're building it for with a permanent nature, but at the same time, you're living in the light of the fact that's, that, that because you are in these bodies that you will soon die, right? 
or your spouse will die. Somebody will leave this world before the other, and at that point, that marriage will, will end. And that there is no marriage, according to Jesus, that there is no marriage beyond this earth. There is no marrying in heaven, and so this is it for you. And so how will you live in light of it, in light of the reality that this is it, right? It's permanent, and yet it's not permanent. Another paradox in marriage. But the final paradox, the one that's important for us this morning that we often share with our couples is the paradox of bound freedom. It's the idea that marriage is, in fact, what the old bowling alley bowling club friends told you that it was. And what I mean by that is that it is a ball and chain. That's exactly what it is. Marriage is ball and chain. It is and two becoming one, and when two become one, there's no such thing as saying, well, my freedom. It becomes our freedom. Does that make sense? But even though it's a ball and chain, it is one that actually liberates you to do things that otherwise you would not be able to do apart from it. Does that make sense? In other words, in, in other words, you say, well, I want family, and I want committed family. I want covenant family. I want family that's going to be there for the long haul. And you say, well, okay, but I don't want to be bound to anybody to get it. And you say, okay, well, that's a little hard. Does it make sense? In other words, if you want genuine, deep, enduring family, you have to have two people bound to each other to make it happen. Does it make sense? Can't have two people talking about, I'm going to do what I want to do over here. You do what you want to do over here. We're just going to be free, right? And we're going to be free and enjoy family freedom. And it's like, no, in order to get to family freedom, there has to be two people connected. And, that, and that's just one example. There's a, there's a host of different things, dozens and dozens of different things that marriage, when it's bound together rightly, actually liberates you and frees you up to do things that you would not be able to do had you not been married and had you not been bound in marriage. All right? Bound freedom. That's an important thought. It's an important concept for this morning. Because Jesus, in Christ, we are bound to him. Paul oftentimes refers to himself as a servant or a more crude term, one that doesn't jive with our sensibilities in this time and day, is slave. Doulos is the Greek term for it. And Paul refers to himself often in those terms, that he is a slave to Christ. He's bound to him. He submitted to him. Where Christ says go, he goes. But in being a slave, what I, what I, what I would argue and what, what I hope to convince you of this morning is that in being a slave, in being bound, Paul finds his greatest source of freedom, his greatest source of liberation. Does that make sense? Amen. This is what this text is focusing in on. Again, if, you, if you've been with us or, or if you haven't been with us, go back and listen to the sermons on the, on the podcast or on the app, uh, the City Light Church app, and you can kind of catch up in what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks in chapter 8. But, but in chapter 8, the scene is getting hotter. The, the, the tension is building in the air as Jesus is having conversations with this group of people. 
And he's starting to say some things that are making people get very uncomfortable and feel very uncomfortable. And he's starting to rattle some cages. And some of the claws are starting to show in people. Some of the fangs are starting to show in people. They're getting upset. But this group of people, verse 30 of chapter 8, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. This group of people happens to, or at least seem like, they're on board with the things that Jesus is saying and doing. Are you tracking with that? That he said that he, in the middle of a feast, we've talked about this feast, the Feast of the Tabernacles, right? And we've talked about how this feast has two ceremonies in particular that are showstoppers. One is a water libation ceremony where water is carried to the temple, and it's a demonstration or a plea to God that he would send, the, send greater rains in the next season so that, the, uh, so that all the crops would receive great harvest. And, and, and so they are celebrating the fact that God provided rain in the past— and gave them harvest and food, but they're also praying that God would do it again, right? And we said that in the midst of this, Jesus said, he rose up and he said, if any man thirsts, he cried out, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That out of his belly, out of the reservoirs of his inner being shall flow rivers of living water. And he said that on a day that you're supposed to be thinking about this water at the temple. And he said, no, 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 no. The water at the temple isn't what you need. I'm what you need. But there was a second ceremony that we talked about, and that ceremony was this idea, this light, this light show on display in Jerusalem. And we talked about the candlesticks that were 30 feet in the air that that the young men had to put ladders ladders on and climb up to and light this candle that had multiple candlesticks applied to it. And these large candle holders would light the sky in Jerusalem, and it, said, and, and it was said that it would light all the courtyards in Jerusalem, this great light. And in the midst of that, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In other words, yeah, I know you're looking at the light of the temple. Stop looking at that. That's not where, that's not where your hope is. Your hope is here. I'm the light, and I will bring light to all the darkness in the world. Two heavyweight things to say in the midst of a Jerusalem or Jewish festival, Jewish celebration. Two heavy things to say. But some people, some people bought it, and they believe. But what does that belief look like? What does that belief in verse 30 actually look like? This is going to be kind of hard to grasp, okay, because what appears to be belief in the beginning falls apart really, really, really fast in this text. And this goes back to something that we discussed two months ago, or months ago, rather. I don't know if it was two months, but a few months ago in John chapter 2. And it was this. There was a moment in John chapter 2 towards the end where it says that they were at the Passover, and many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so there were some people that believed according to that verse. And Jesus says, but I don't believe you. That's literally what the Greek says. They believed, but he didn't believe in them. Which means that their belief 
was superficial. Their belief was on the surface. They saw signs and they said, that's good enough for me. But they had yet to really challenge their own hearts as to whether or not their belief in the fact that he was supernatural transcend or or transformed into a trust that he was Lord. Does that make sense? This text is another example of that. John chapter 8, verse 30, verse, verse 30 is another example of that. If you read this text too fast by the end of it, if you work through from verse 30 all the way to the end of chapter 8, you'll think that Jesus is talking to two different people by the end of it. Because of how sharp and how biting the conversation gets from verse 30 all the way down. You'll be like, hey, I, okay, so there were some people that believed, and then there must have been another group of people that, that didn't believe and that Jesus had to set in awe and had to set straight. The reality is, is that he's talking, to, he's talking to the same group from verse 30 down to the end of this chapter. He's sharp. He's direct. By the end of this thing, he's calling them sons of Satan. Right? This is is not your average altar call where people come in like, yeah, I believe. And then by the end of it, you're like, sons of Satan, every last one of you. This is not how altar calls normally work. But not only is he sharp and, 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 and very direct, but they're also very aggressive by the end and very vengeful, seeking his death by the end of this. It appears that we again have a case of belief that's absent of trust. Belief that's absent of submission. We can't say this enough. I need you to hear this. Believing that God exists is not the same as submitting your life to his lordship. James says that even the demons believe that he exists and know that he is one God. Know that there is no one above him nor like him. The demons know that. That's what Jesus' brother tells us, that they know that, that they acknowledge that. See, one is believing in the facts about God. The other is believing in him to the point of trusting him with your life, and those are two different things. John warns about this throughout his gospel. But not only does John warn about it throughout his gospel, John wrote a letter to the church warning about this very thing. If you look at 1 John, 1 John, a great deal, a great bit of that letter to the church is warning them about false conversion. Is warning them about belief without trust. About knowing the facts about God without submitting to God. Does that make sense? And so John wrote that letter, and he's writing here today. This conversation is about to go in an entirely different direction. Let's look at it. Verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He starts by giving them literally the key to freedom. Here's the key to freedom. Abide in my word. Abide in my word. Faith is abiding, living in it. Does that, make, does that make sense? It becoming part of you and you becoming part of it. That's what faith is. Faith is bringing your life in subjection to 
his word. That's what abide looks like. That's what abide means. Bringing your life in subjection to his word. Are you tracking with that? Not simply being comfortable with his words kind of hitting and missing you as you deem it appropriate, right? In other words, the, the things that you like about his word, you say, oh, man, yeah, that's a, that's a good word, right? That's a good word. And then, and then the other words, you're like, man, get that dude out of here. What was he preaching about today? I can't stand that, Pastor. Does that make sense? But actually abiding in, in his whole word. And he says, then you are my disciples. So he's talking to a group of people that say we believe. He says, do you really? This is how you do it. You abide in my word. The things that I tell you, you follow. You listen, you obey, then you are my disciples. You live in my word. You make my word a part of you. Then you are my disciples. Then you are my followers. Do you get that? Not just believing in the facts, but actually trusting and submitting to his lordship. That's what he's telling them. Then you are my disciples. And they say this, they say, um, and then he says this rather, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So the word, his word, is the truth. And so if you abide in it, then the truth is yours. The truth about God, the truth about the world, the truth about salvation, the truth about your life, your purpose, your intentions to be, for the reason that you are here, what you have been called to do, your chief aim, all of those truths. If you abide in him, then you receive that truth. And the truth will set you free. So these truths that you abide in will free you. Now, so, so, so we know, just looking at the context, that Jesus' words here, that the truth will set you free, is not how we oftentimes use these, use these words, right? Does that make sense? You guys ever heard this verse used before? For all sorts of different stuff, right? Right? Man, he is ugly. He is ugly just like his daddy's ugly. His daddy's ugly. He is ugly as his daddy. Dude, why are you, why are you tripping? Why are you, why, are you, why are you being so harsh? Well, I'm just telling the truth, man. You know what the Bible says, truth will set you free. That's not what it means. <laughs> not, not what it means, okay? Not at all. The truth will set you free is in this sense. In our submission to him, we find liberation. So we abide in the word, and the word requires our submission. The word requires, here's the word, our bondage. It requires that we bring our thoughts. It requires that we bring our actions. It requires that we bring our conduct, our beliefs, our opinions. It requires that we bring them into subjection to him. Right? But in bringing them into subjection to him, Contrary to what everybody tells us, our friends tell us, well, oh, man, that's so restrictive. Actually, what it's going to do is liberate you. He says, then you will actually find real liberty and real freedom. You won't find it outside of that. You'll find it in it. Verse 33, it says, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So here's the deception of spiritual bondage at work. How is it that you're going to, we've never been slaves to anybody. The nerve of you to say we need freedom 
when we've never been bound. See, the Jews, we're still talking about the same Jews, right, that believed. The Jews who believed that Jesus is more than just a man failed to see their bondage and thus failed to see their need for freedom. Their responses seems to show that they definitely understand what type of freedom Jesus is, is offering because their response disregards all of the actual physical bondage that they themselves as a people have undergone. So, so, so they, they aren't talking about physical bondage. They know, it seems from the text, that they know Jesus is talking about spiritual bondage. Why do you say that, Brian? Well, because Egypt, right? They were bound in Egypt. Matter of fact, the feast that they're celebrating, the Feast of the Tabernacles, is a remembrance of how God delivered them from that slavery. Does that make sense? They were bound in Babylon. They were bound in Assyria. Does that make sense? Technically, you can say they're bound now in Rome. So they know physical bondage. That's not what they're talking about here when they say, hey, what are you doing talking about the fact that we need to be delivered? We don't need to be delivered. We've never been bound. Their denial can only mean that they understand Jesus' call for spiritual deliverance. They just don't believe they need it because they got Abraham. They say, our father, man. We got our father, right? We got, we, we got him. We got, the, we got the truth. We got the word. We got the festivals. We got the feast. We got the ceremonies. We got the sacrifices. We have the temple. We are free. We don't need your freedom. We believe you, but we kind of don't. Does that make sense? It is a bondage that we, they, are so entrenched in and so connected to, a bondage that offers so many small and temporal forms of satisfaction that they literally can't even see it as bondage. Anybody ever heard, heard of Stockholm, Stockholm Syndrome? Anybody ever heard of that? BBC News or British Broadcasting Corporation released an article in 2013, of August 2013, defining the Stockholm Syndrome in this way. It says this, quote, the term is most associated with Patty Hearst, the Californian newspaper uh, heiress who was kidnapped by revolutionary militants in 1974. She appeared to develop sympathy with her captors and joined them in a robbery. She was eventually caught and received a prison sentence. But Hearst's defense lawyer, Bailey, claimed that the 19-year-old had been brainwashed and was suffering from Stockholm Syndrome, a term that had been recently coined to explain the apparently irrational feelings of some captives for their captors, end quote. It is the phenomena that takes place when captives begin to identify with the captor in such a way that they not only simply lose sight of their bondage, but they begin to empathize with the one who is holding them bound. And this, in some ways, captures our bondage to sin. We don't see it coming. We don't notice it. We don't even realize that we're in it. And I would suspect that there is no bondage quite as powerful as the type that masks itself as true freedom. Is there any bondage more effective than the one that tells you you're free? 
There was a sci-fi action movie that was released in March of 1999. My favorite movie ever. It's The Matrix. Anybody ever seen that? Anybody? This might, this might, be, this might be shooting over too many of y'all heads, man. Y'all need to go back and watch it, right? Probably won't be that big of a deal to you guys now. Y'all seen way better effects and all that kind of stuff. But was a great movie. Blew all of us away back in 1999. We were like, wow, this is unbelievable. We didn't go to school for like two weeks after that. Just playing, just playing. No, it, it, no we went to school. It, did, it wasn't that serious. But it blew us away. So The Matrix was, it starred Keanu Reeves and it starred Lawrence Fishburne. And, and it sought to answer this question um, how effective is bondage when it's communicated as freedom, right? And, and, so, and so it was a movie about normal people living normal lives, except for this one guy who was a super-duper computer hacker named Thomas Anderson. His code hacking name was NEO, which is, a, a, which is an acronym or, or, or um, acrostic for one, because he was like the one. He was the one that was going to set the captives free, all right? And so Neo at night would do his little hacking thing, and he was always curious about, there's something not right here. There's something not right in the world. And his curiosity eventually leads him to this group of people that are super, super stealth and, 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 and just do all kinds of kung fu and, and can hack into anything, and they can fly helicopters, planes, and, 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 and pilot tanks all at the same time, and, and they wore black and really, really cool black, right? Leather black, kind of weird leather black, but, but, but for them it was just cool. It was just, everything about them was just super cool. And so Neo was like, who are these people? What are they about? And they begin to explain to him. And so Morpheus, who was played by Lawrence Fishburne, he begins to explain to Neo why is it that they can do all these things in this, in this world that he's in. And he says that the world that you are in is not the real world. That there is that that there is another world, and that and that the the other world is the actual real world. So he takes Neo behind the scenes to see exactly what's going on. And what Neo finds out is that this world that he's been living in that feels normal, looks normal, feels right, looks right, is actually a virtual simulation. And that behind the scenes, Neo is like in an incubator in a vegetable state plugged up to this massive machine that is feeding some sort of sentinel robot technology. And so everybody is just basically living in this machine and being batteries for this robot. I know we have went way off the rails here, but listen, listen, I'm going somewhere, and it is a good movie. You need to go, you need to go back and watch it on, I don't know, VHS or something. Maybe they got it on, you know, cassette tape. But, but nevertheless, all of this happens, right, and Neo realizes, wait a minute, I've been in this world all my life. It feels real, it looks real, it sounds real. And yet, I'm bound. I've been a slave all this time. And not only have I been a slave, but everybody around me has been slaves all this time. And he has to begin to ask himself the question, is it, is it worth just continuing to be a slave and live in this ignorant bliss that I've been living in? Or do I want to be really free? It feels right, looks right, seems right. Feels like freedom, in fact. Looks like freedom, seems like freedom. 
and yet they were bound in the worst of ways. No matter how many sensations this virtual world brought them, they were actually numb to real sensation, true sensation. No matter how many satisfactions that this world actually brought them, they were numb to real satisfaction, true satisfaction, genuine satisfaction, lasting satisfaction. They were blind and they were deaf to the vision and sounds of true beauty. The computer was telling them how chicken tastes, and they never had the opportunity to actually taste it for themselves. The Jews here think that their lineage has protected them from spiritual bondage. Do you know who our father is, they ask. We have the truth of God's word. We, we aren't like the other pagans walking around this earth. We are free because Abraham is our father. And this leads to Jesus providing us a definition of true spiritual bondage. He says in verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. What Jesus lays out is important for us to think about. In other words, I want you to hear this. There is no such thing as complete autonomy. There is no such thing as complete autonomy. There's no such thing as complete independence. There's no such thing as complete freedom. Whoever tells you that is lying to you. You will and you are serving something or someone at any time at all times. Make no mistake, what Jesus calls for in verse 31 is service. When he says, abide in me, if my words abide in you, he's calling for submission, right? He says, yep, I hear you. You heard me say that I'm the light of the world. You heard me say that if any man come in, uh, thirst, let him come and drink. I hear you. Now you're here. You want to you wanna take part in that? This is what you have to do. Submit. And if you submit to me, then you'll find genuine freedom. If you submit to me, then you will be my disciples or my followers. He's calling for submission. And they say, well, hold on now. We don't need your version of freedom. We, we're already free. And Jesus says, no, actually, you're bound and you just don't know it. You, too, are living in the matrix. This is, what, this is what faith looks like. It's not just a belief that God exists or even that God is Jesus or that Jesus is God's son, but it's a trust in him. It's a submission to him. It's a willingness to take your life in his hands and follow. Now, they're saying I'm not interested. I want to live my own life. I want to think for myself. I want to go where I want to go, do what I want to do. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm the master of my destiny, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he's saying, no, you're bound. Atheists, those who don't believe in God, often believe they have freedom that extends beyond the believers in God. But Sam Harris, one of the most renowned atheists in all of the world, one of the foremost renowned atheists in all the world, puts it in his book, Free Will, that this belief isn't even consistent with atheism. He says that free will is an illusion. Our wills are simply not of our own making. We do not have the freedom we think we have. And so what Sam says, the atheist says, is that if there is nothing to this world but, 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 but chemical, chemicals and, 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 you know, just nature doing its thing and nature making you and you're just a sum of DNA and sum of uh, chemical interactions and hormonal interactions, then guess what? The free will that you think you have is not really free will. It's just chemicals responding to the reactions or, or to the environment around them. And so even the atheist that wants to say they have free will, they follow their atheism to the logical end, they realize that they don't have it. None of us are living autonomous. 
Jesus, in, in my opinion, offers a better thought on this, though, one that is more in sync with what you and I feel. See, we don't feel our bodies responding to just chemical stim- or to just environmental stimuli, do we? We feel tugs, don't we? When decision time comes, we don't just feel a, a natural response to just go that direction. We feel tugs. When, it's, when the decision comes to choose this, choose this man as a boyfriend or choose this girl as a girlfriend, we feel tugs like, is this the right one for me or what is this? Right? When we're, when we're prone to look at our phone during, you know, during, during uh, those moments where we're driving, we feel tugs like, should I be looking at my phone while I'm driving? Or do I need to look at Facebook one more time to see who just liked my post? We feel tugs. Because it's not just chemical reactions, is it? You know what it is? It's the fight from bondage. It's the battle and the war that's being waged in your soul. Jesus says that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And so he talks about the fact that, no, you are not as free as you think. If you are not in me, it's because you are bound in sin. And I've come to set you free. We are not autonomous. We are not independent. We are all governed by something. Paul says you are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to righteousness in Romans chapter 6. And he says when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, when you were a slave to sin, you were free, just free from right things, (laughs) free from right standing with God. You were free. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death? He said, you were free, but you were free on your way to hell. You were free, but you were free and bound in sin. But now, he continues, that you have been set free and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. So Paul's point is that you are a slave to something, something masters you, something owns you. But here's the key. One master leads us to sanctification, growth, and eventually eternal life. The other master leads us to corruption, decay, self-destruction, and eventually eternal death. So maybe you're like these guys and saying, who is Jesus talking to? I'm free. I've never felt freer. In my life, I'm doing whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. And here's the question I would ask you. How free are you really if you hear that which you're doing is destroying you, but in some, uh, it's destroying you in some ways now and ultimately will destroy you eternally, and yet you still can't stop doing it. How free are you? Does that make sense? Now, take note. These people that we're talking about aren't junkies. They aren't junkies. They aren't drunks. They aren't hoarders, <laughs> right? So it's like... You know, the type of people that you think about with normal addictions. They're not, they aren't these people. They aren't fiends on a corner. These are relatively church people gathering for the great religious festivals. And yet Jesus says that they are bound, which tells us that bondage doesn't always come in the packages that we expect. 
Bondage isn't always drugs. It isn't always alcohol. It isn't always sex. It could be all those things, and sometimes it could be none of them. Sometimes it could be self-righteousness. Sometimes it could be selfish ambition. Sometimes it could be gossip. Sometimes it could be envy. Sometimes it could be unforgiveness. That you're literally bound to unforgiveness, that you will not forgive. Even though God says if you do not forgive people on earth, then your heavenly father cannot forgive you. That you hear that and you literally say, I will not forgive. What does that tell you? Does that tell you that it's just because you're strong? Or does it tell you something else? It's because you're bound. Are you bound to the things that no one else calls bondage, right? Because there's a lot of those things. There's drugs, there's alcohol, ooh, bad, bondage. But then there's other things that nobody calls bondage that has us bound. No one else calls it bondage but Jesus. Are you bound to the things that some people would congratulate you on while Jesus is seeking to free you of? Don't fear the clear addictions, right? Don't fear the drugs, the alcohol. Yeah, we know. Some of us have already leaped beyond that point, and we will never turn to those things. But don't think that the fight for you has ended. Because hiding in the darkest recesses of our soul are the ones, are the, bound, are the ones that bound us, that latch onto our personality and portray themselves as just part of who we are. They convince us that this is just who you are. You know, I mean, I know you treat everybody like a jerk, but that's, you know, it's just part of your nature to treat people like jerks. No, that's bondage. Vengeful, angry, hostile bondage. And Jesus is trying to free them. He says the slave doesn't remain in the house forever in verse 36. Verse 35, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free Indeed, bondage, bondage carries with it an end. We can't stay in God's presence forever in bondage. Slave can't stay in the house. We eventually must be banished. That is unless the slave is a slave to the son. If the slave has submitted himself or herself to the son, as slaves of the son, we receive freedom from the bondage of sin. And we learn what it truly looks like to live free. Because of the mercy and the goodness of God, he gives us true freedom when we submit ourselves to him. See, he's a good owner. He's a good master. He doesn't use his ownership of us to lord over us. Actually, he uses his ownership and he liberates us. He gives us more freedom than you've ever had. He gives you freedom that you, he gives you, freedom that you had yet to even experience or yet to even know existed. He frees you of your shame, for example. He frees you of your need to have to prove yourself. He frees you of your need to, to have to live up to somebody else's expectations. He frees you of the burden of your sin that you wrestle with, knowing that you are not right before God. And he frees you of it because he says, I'll stand in your place for you. That on your worst day, you are still righteous, not because of you, but on your worst day, you are righteous because the son, your master, stands in your place now. He gives you freedom that you never knew of. The devil's bondage initially feels freeing, but deceptively leads us to temporary satisfactions, worse bondage, and a destructive end. The son's bondage initially feels restrictive, but leads us. 
to higher pleasures, deeper satisfaction, an eternal life, and a freer life. In closing, he says in verse 37, and this is the reality of spiritual bondage that begins to set in on this text. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do, and you do what you have heard from your father. You are the physical lineage of Abraham, he says. You're his offspring, but you're not his spiritual lineage. You're his offspring, but he's not your father. He says, you're his offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Bondage will leave us seeking to suppress Christ in whatever way we possibly can. When Christ calls for ownership of our lives, we'll try to, we'll try to suppress that call. We'll try to destroy that call. We'll, we'll try to counsel that call, right? When he calls for ownership of our lives, we'll even find, we'll even find new churches to go to, right? Churches that, that don't preach that, right? It may, be, it may be clear in the Bible. You may look at it, read it, see it, say, oh, man, God's calling me to that. Mm, Lord, help me. Or you may look at it, read it, see it. Oh, God's calling me to that. Find somebody that's not talking about that. Where are you, church? Where, oh, there you are. Okay, that's where I'll go next Sunday. Does that make sense? Bondage will seek to suppress Christ. You have to be aware of how strong the bondage of sin is, the bondage of our wills, that it will fight against truth with every fiber of your being. Jesus says, I speak of what I have seen with my father. You do what you have heard from your father. He says, I know what I saw. I was with him. He said, this is what you heard. And so basically he's saying that no matter how free you think you are, you only have two masters. It's either this father or that father. If Christ is not your Lord, then God is not your father. And if God is not your father, you are not autonomous. You are not independent. You're just under the bondage of another father. A father that manifests himself in a million different ways that he calls freedom. He manifests himself in self-discovery called freedom. Manifests himself in liberated freedom. Manifests himself in my life, I do what I want to do. Manifests himself in my way, I go where I want to go. Manifests himself in a million different ways. There's only one way that God manifests himself, and it's through the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's a million ways that the devil manifests himself, and you can find him at every turn and every corner. Never fool yourself into thinking that if you forsake Christ, that it's because you want to be independent. You are not. If you forsake Christ, it's because you have fallen under the rule and reign of another, one who is far harsher, one who has no love for you, one who will see to it that you will not have an eternal life, but only see to it that you will have eternal suffering. And so let us run to the Son who gives us not only freedom, he says if we be in the Son, then not only are we free, not only does the truth set us free, but it sets us free 
indeed. In other words, sets us free to the uttermost. Sets us free in such a way that bondage can never, never be our testimony again. We never return back to the chains. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's what Jesus has done for you. If you have not made him Lord and Savior, do not, do not forsake him this morning. Embrace him as Lord and Savior. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you. We give you glory and honor. Father, I thank you for the people in this room. I pray, Lord God, that you would help them. Father, we all wrestle in our ways, um, many different ways. But, Lord God, you have set us free through the Son. And so, Lord God, may we, may we realize that the chains are no longer on us. There are no chains holding us. We've been set free. Let us walk in that freedom, live in that freedom. Let us celebrate that freedom. Father, if there be any, any in this room who do not know you, I pray, Lord God, that they would turn, that they would put their lives in your hands. Submission, yes, but submission that leads to greater freedom, God. Would you do it for your glory? And would you do it for our eternal joy, Lord God? These things we ask and pray in your son Christ's name. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.